Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure for me to be here today as well. My name is Robert Forsyth. I am the Bishop of South Sydney, which means I have the great privilege of overseeing the churches here in the diocese from what's called South Sydney region. You may not have heard of it, but it goes all the way from Watson's Bay in the east. That's the east, by the way, Roger. Uh, to Homebush Bay in the west and Botany Bay in the south. There are some 54 parishes or units. And um, although you may not know of me, I'm the sort of backroom boy praying and thinking and, and caring for you. And it's been a great joy to be here at this occasion. It's occurred to me, I have a policy about this church. I only appoint clergymen with the name Roger in them as rector. And it's been a very successful policy. <laughs> and I, I, I too remember what Margaret's talking about. And I, I must, even in my own time, my own 12 years as bishop, I've seen uh, God do wonderful things. And I pray God continue to enrich the people of this part of Sydney with your ministry of the word and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the text. In fact, you might think that the text for this sermon is just a little inappropriate for a confirmation. Uh, this, we just got to this part of, 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 of Mark. It's just a lack of a liturgy, as it were. Here we are. But here's the problem. Confirmation is a ceremony, it's not one mandated by scripture, but one our church has practiced for many, many years. It's a ceremony about keeping on. A believer confirms their turning to Christ as a lifelong commitment. And you wheel the bishop out, who prays that by God's grace, they may continue his forever. And, and I quote, increase in your Holy Spirit more and more until they come to your everlasting kingdom. It's a ceremony about keeping on in commitment to Christ and the Christian faith. But the section we've just read in the latter chapters of Mark is all about the failure of the disciples to keep on even for one night. It's a story of failure of commitment. It begins with Jesus and his disciples having left the room where they ate what we now call the Last Supper, going out of the city of Jerusalem, across the valley and up the Mount of Olives. It is there that Jesus gives them devastating news. I quote verse 27, You'll all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after this, sorry, but after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. I close quotes. But they'll have none of it. Verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Uh, but Jesus knows differently. Truly, truly, Jesus answered, I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But this only makes them more adamant. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Well, there's pretty strong confirmation of commitment. Wouldn't you say? 
Now scroll on to the end of our reading, Mark 14, verse 71. We find Peter openly denying he ever knew Jesus at all. In fact, not once, twice, this is the third time, and now he even invokes God's curse. When it says, he began to call down curses, it means he says, may God do to me and more so if I'm not telling the truth. I don't know the man you're talking about. And then suddenly Peter is drawn to a shock, the shocking realisation of what he's just done. We read, immediately the rooster crowed the second time, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. And the others? Well, they didn't even get that far. When Jesus is arrested by an armed party in the garden, he quietly accepts it. But that has dire results for the resolve of the disciples. Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Not much of a model for those being confirmed this morning, is it? And there's more. I should have mentioned the terrible behaviour of the inner three, Peter, James and John, whom Jesus took along with him in his terrible distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 33 of 14 we read, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. What do they do? Oh, they stay there, all right. Because every time Jesus comes back, he's found they've fallen asleep. Rather pathetically, Mark adds, they did not know what to say to him. And I won't mention Judas, one of the 12, who leads the party to arrest Jesus. So here you are, you come to church and you're going to make promises to follow Christ for your whole life. And you find there's a Bible reading, not chosen by me, I might add, <laughs> featuring the depressing story of Jesus' closest disciples, every last man of them, Unable to follow, not able to manage to follow him one night. Despite the fierce promises they made. Indeed, as Jesus himself remarks about them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So perhaps, should we perhaps have kept all this rather quiet, not to alarm those being confirmed? A nicer text, perhaps, would have been more appropriate. But it did happen. And the way to help those explicitly setting out on a lifetime of serving Christ is not to hide from them the dangers and threats they face. Such deception, in my view, creates the conditions where failure is more, not less likely. Now, there's something else in this story which is of great strengthening to those who feel the flesh is weak, though the spirit might be willing. 
There is a story also in this account of, not a failure, but of a paradoxical success. Or to put it more accurately, of faith and steadfastness in extremis. It's the story of Jesus, which so contrasts with the failure of his disciples. See, it's saying four episodes. Firstly, see how Jesus handles the imminent failure of his disciples. Does he panic? No. Is he disillusioned with them? No. I'll go back to verse 27. You'll all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, she will be scattered. But after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. He cites Zechariah 13, a rather strange text about God striking the shepherd and the sheep being scattered. A text, though, if you read on, ends in a promise that there'll be a refined remainder who will call upon my name and I'll answer them. And I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. In bringing this text to mind, Jesus is declaring that even the disciples' failure is within a deeper purpose of God, which is being played out in the terrible events that are about to happen. And so confident is Jesus in God's purpose, he can even assure them, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Although I doubt they neither heard nor understood him, what he was talking about. Secondly, we find the same confidence at the point of Jesus' arrest. That which I think panics the disciples to flee is Jesus' remarkable coolness, even confidence. Am I leading a rebellion, says Jesus, that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple and the courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. But thirdly, Jesus' trust in God his Father did not mean that Jesus was always calmly in control or untroubled. Far from it. In the garden, he had been terribly distressed. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. That takes some thinking about, doesn't it? He even prayed that he'd be spared the ordeal. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And it would be the Abba, Father's will, however, no matter how terrible, that he would embrace. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Though not embraced easily, Mark writes that Jesus prayed the same thing and went through the same struggle three times. And then he seems to snap out of it when the arresting party finally turns up and the awful waiting, as it were, is over. Verse 41, enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. But fourthly, it is in the trial of Jesus before the Jerusalem hierarchy of the high priests, all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law, a literal hierarchy, I might say, that Jesus stands out. 
he has two responses to their efforts to find something to pin on him. The first response is silence. But it is a strong silence. Verse 61, then the chief priest, the high priest rather, stood up before them and asked their Jesus, are you going to answer? What is this testimony these men bringing, are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. But the second response is when he's finally pushed by the high priest to the decisive point. Again, we read, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? That is, are you the one commissioned by God as king, whom God calls his son? I am, said Jesus. And then in an amalgam of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.13, he makes the most astounding claim about himself. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One is from Psalm 110 verse 1. It means that he is set to share, to sit at the right hand is to share divine sovereignty. The Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven is a citation from the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and 13, where Daniel has a vision of a human figure after these terrible beasts he's seen. Now comes one like a Son of Man, a human figure, who comes to be presented before the Ancient of Days, before God, in other words. And then I quote, from verse 14 of Daniel. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. So he comes in the clouds of heaven to receive authority over all nations. This, Jesus says to the high priest, you will see. You will see me sharing the very divine sovereignty itself. You will see me, as it were, being transported on the clouds of heaven to the very throne of the Ancient One and receiving all authority. You will see this, he says to the high priest. And that's the blasphemous claim that gives them the pretext they've been looking for to destroy Jesus, or so they think. It's interesting to pause a moment, and uh, this is a bit jumping ahead, but to ask what did they actually see? What did the high priest see? If you jump ahead to chapter 15, all they see actually is a man undergoing the shameful death by crucifixion. That's all they saw. In utter weakness. In fact, they, they themselves are aware of the irony. I quote from 1531, he saved others, they said. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. That's what they saw. Though the gospel announces that in fact it is that very crucified Jesus, that one who died so shamefully, who is now being exalted to the right hand of the mighty one, who has come in the clouds of heaven and received all authority in his Lord, not despite, but even through 
the shameful death they saw. So that's the second theme. The first is the failure of the disciples. The second is the victory, the paradoxical victory of Jesus, the son of the father. And it's this second theme, ladies and gentlemen, that takes up and prevents the first being the last word. The last word is not the failure of the disciples. The last word is the faithfulness of Jesus, the divine son. They were faithless. He is faithful. And their failure, sadly, except for that of Judas, who despaired of grace, their failure was not final. There is surprising evidence of the final faithfulness of the disciples right in front of you. If you've got the book of Mark open, the very text itself. Papias uh, was bishop and a Christian leader who wrote in the first decades of the second century. This is 2013, he wrote in 113. And Papias, it's hard to imagine this, he years earlier had actually met and talked with some of the original disciples of Jesus. It's amazing to think about that, right? He's an old man who, who recounts what it was to meet original disciples of Jesus. And one of these, whom Papias calls John the Elder, um, is most likely the beloved disciple who wrote what we know as the Gospel of John. And that beloved disciple, that elder John, as he's called by Papias, was quite forthcoming about certain things. And here's what Papias said that disciple told him about the gospel we're reading today. I quote, and the elder said this, Mark, having become the translator of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the saving sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instruction to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's say sayings. The obvious point I'm saying is this. Mark's gospel, from which we've read this account, is written by someone who learned all this stuff from an other than Peter himself. Papias says he was not himself, Mark, a disciple, although some scholars wonder where that mysterious young man fleeing in the night may have actually been a cameo appearance by the author of the gospel. We'll never know. Mark worked with Peter when Peter taught others about Christ, when Peter bravely confessed Christ, the one who said, I never knew the man, stood up and spoke throughout the ancient world, throughout the, the Hellenistic world of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the very existence of Mark's gospel is evidence that the Peter who failed so poorly and wept so bitterly was restored and carried on confessing Christ with a vengeance, you might say. Which brings us back at last uh, to our confirmation. You may notice, in fact, that confirmation is not really about getting people to imitate the rash promises of the disciples. That's not the purpose of confirmation. 
It's rather a turning to Christ, whom they now believe in and trust. In fact, it's a service in which the last word is not people making promises, but us together calling upon divine assistance and aid. It's about the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, not about the resolve and toughness of those who stand to be confirmed. The highlight of the service is, may I say, when the bishop calls the people to prayer in this way, and I quote, let us pray that God who has begun a good work in these, our brothers and sisters, may carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And then you'll notice this the prayer, defend, O Lord, your servant with your heavenly grace, that they may continue yours forever and daily increase in your Holy Spirit more and more until they come to everlasting kingdom. That's our confidence. That's the only confidence, in fact, a believer has. It is the faithfulness of the Lord, not the commitment of his servants, that we celebrate today. Let's pray. Grant us all, Father, set in this world of temptations, weaknesses and threats, set with our own flesh so weak, to rest and stand upon the utter faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake, obeying you, was obedient even to death, death on a cross. Amen.